You are listening to the Passion City Church podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Louis Giglio. The message today has been titled, Where is God? And the question is everywhere right now in culture. In fact, I saw a pop up in my feed just a few days ago, an op-ed piece in the New York Times, and the title of it was, Where is God in a Pandemic? And I want to take that question on today because the answer is unbelievable and it's filled with hope. You know, last week we looked at two big questions that always rise to the surface in a moment like this. The question of, is God judging the world? Is this the end? And the question, if God is loving and good, then why is all of this happening? And why is this pandemic sweeping the earth? But today we look at the question, where is God? People are dying. The world is at a standstill. People are afraid and desperate. Where is God? And it's such a valid question. You know, sometimes I think in the church, we've sort of wanted to push all the questions to the side and say, oh, you just have to have faith. But I want you to know today that God is welcoming your questions because he wants to be able to shine a light on truth and shine a light on who he is. So it's a great question. It's a valid question, a question we should be asking today. And as we look to the answer to that question today, I just want to say one more time, we're not in any way trying to minimize the situation that we are in. I'm going to look to a spiritual answer today. But in looking to a spiritual answer, it doesn't mean that we don't understand and recognize that we need real-time breakthrough to stop the spread of this pandemic. And so the church isn't standing on one side or the other of science and faith today. We're standing right in the middle. You already heard on this gathering that in a few days from now, we'll be an epicenter here at our Atlanta location of distributing, is just distributing 35,000 pounds of resources through organizations in our city to the people who are most vulnerable. It's not an either or. It's not we need to press forward for a cure or a vaccine for medical procedures, equipment, and supplies, or we just need to believe God and trust God and have faith in God. It's a both and today, but as we answer the question, where is God, I'm going to lead us to a spiritual answer. I believe that answer will permeate all areas of our life, but I just want you to hear, again, we're not using this pandemic as a pretext to a message today. We realize that we are up against a ferocious enemy, and the consequences are staggering. And if we don't see some kind of a breakthrough, the difficult days, the most difficult days, are probably still ahead. And in the middle of it all, we ask today, where is God? To answer that question today, I want to take us to probably the epicenter of where that question would be asked. And that is on day two. You're like, what is day two? What does that have to do with our lives? Well, our story, the story of Jesus, has its penultimate moment and its climax in a three-day window of time. 
three days in Palestine over 2,000 years ago where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave his life for the sins of the world. Friday, we call it now Good Friday, Jesus died for the sins of the world. In fact, in the scripture, we read it this way, 1 Peter chapter 3, reading in verse 18. It says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. That once for all, on Good Friday, Jesus Christ died for sins to bring you to God. So we know about day one, but Jesus said on the third day, I'm going to come back to life. And so we celebrate that day as Easter, the day that the stone was rolled away. We discovered the tomb was empty. We realized that what Jesus did promise actually had come to pass, that the Son of God, dead on day one, is very much alive on day three. This is the story of God's redemptive plan for all mankind in all time and in history. This is God's salvation plan. Day one, Christ has died. Day three, Christ is alive. But I want to talk for a moment about day two. I don't know if I've ever heard a message in my lifetime on the second day. So I went to the Gospels, of course, because I wanted to revisit the story, the eyewitness accounts of this three-day journey, this three-day work of Almighty God, this three-day window of time where God was doing what you couldn't do and what I couldn't do when God was doing something that causes the human mind to strain to its greatest ability to comprehend. I looked down Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Only one of the four gospel writers gives any account of what happened on day two, and that's in Matthew's gospel. And Matthew tells us that on the second day, that the chief priest and the leaders of the Jewish community that had put Jesus on trial and sent him to crucifixion, that they went to the authorities and said, hey, we want to make sure there's no hoax, and so we want to seal the tomb. We want you to set a guard. We want you to put your authority on the tomb so that no one can go there, steal the body, and then come up with some Easter story that Jesus is alive. That's the only comment that we have from the four eyewitness accounts of day two. All the Gospels, as you read them, and he died. They took down his body, this is day one, and put it in a borrowed tomb. The actual events, they would have happened like this, and we need to do just a little bit of timestamp history so that we understand today where God is leading us. Jesus died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We know this from reading the eyewitness accounts. Sundown on that Friday in Jerusalem would have come somewhere between 7 and 8 p.m. Let's just call it 8 p.m. 
At 8 p.m. on Friday, a new day would have begun. We're talking about a Jewish day, not a Western day. A Jewish day which would begin at sundown and end the next day at sundown. So the day would begin at night. You would wake up to see what God had done. So Friday is ending and the second day is beginning somewhere around 8 p.m. The Sabbath officially begins when you can see three stars in the night sky. So somewhere 7.30, 8 p.m., dusk is coming, night is falling, Sabbath is beginning, day two is about to start. So from 3 p.m. until let's just call it 8 p.m., there's five hours on Friday where Jesus is dead. One of the leaders, a man named Joseph, went to Pilate and he said, I want permission to take the body down from the cross. And he had authority and he was in the circles actually of the Jewish council, but he was also someone who'd become a follower of Jesus. He went to Pilate, got permission. John adds that Nicodemus helped him. They took Jesus' body from the cross, took it nearby to a tomb that was hewn in a rock. This tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, one of the upper class of the day, had never been used before. It says they took a linen strip and they wrapped Jesus' body. They didn't have time for all the official preparations because they were observers of the Sabbath. And when 8 o'clock came, everything would go still. So in a very short period of time, they went and got permission. They went back to the cross. They took down the body. They hastily made preparations. They got the body to a nearby tomb, put it in the tomb, and the scripture says, put a stone in front of that tomb. And now night falls. Day one is over. Now it's day two, 8 p.m., the second day. We all know how to fast forward, right? to the third day. The third day, by the way, would have started at 8 p.m. on Saturday. I hope everybody's, you know, staying along with the timestamp here because it's essential. So it wasn't Friday he died, Sunday morning he was raised from the dead. No, the third day morning would have started at 8 p.m. on Saturday night. That's the third day. So technically, Jesus died at 3 p.m., could have been raised instantly at 8 p.m. on Saturday. 28 hours-ish, 29 hours of death. And in the middle, no comment, no commentary, no eyewitness accounts of anything happening in the moment. This is the greatest place probably that you ask the question today, where is God? This man walked on water. This man raised the dead. This man did miraculous works. This man had power and authority. This man was like no one we'd ever seen before. This man claimed to be the son of God. Now he's dead and nothing is happening. The city is still because of Shabbat and it doesn't seem like God is in the equation at all. And so I want to ask in that context, in that 28-hour window of time, where was God? Because I think the answers are the same for us right now as we're asking the very same question. I think God 
was a couple of places. Number one, God was near. Do you understand that on day two, when the believers in Christ now are afraid for their lives, they crucified our leader, they're coming for us. They put him on a cross, we're going to be next. And so where were the followers of Jesus? They were dismayed. They were bewildered. They were frustrated. They were afraid. They were holed up for their own safety and probably asking the question, what is going on and where is God in all of this? But where was God in all of this? While they were waiting on day two, while they were afraid on day two, while they were locked down in their homes on day two, God was near. I don't mean figuratively near. I don't mean spiritually near. I mean literally the Son of God was near to them on day two. When Jesus was born, they said, call his name Emmanuel. It translates to God with us. This wasn't just some rabbi, some teacher, some holy man. This was God in human flesh. This was the creator of the universe in a human body walking on planet earth and now he was dead in a borrowed tomb laying dead not far from where they were close enough so that in the account of John on Easter day it says when the women went to the tomb and saw that it was empty they came back to the followers of Jesus and said the tomb is empty and John says Peter and I took off running and we ran to the tomb. Now they could have been marathon runners. They could have run 26 miles to the tomb but I don't think they had to run far at all. I think maybe a few hundred meters got them to the tomb. Maybe a half a mile most got them to, a, to the tomb. Why? Because the whole time on day two, when it looked like God was not near, actually Jesus was very close to where they were. And he's close to you. And he's close to all of us in this moment. Not literally because Jesus is alive. We already know what happened on day three. But spiritually and in the spirit and through the spirit, he is still Emmanuel and God is still with us. God doesn't leave the scene when times get tough. He doesn't evacuate under pressure. He's not looking for a safe retreat right now to be isolated from his creation. If that were the case, Jesus would have never entered into history. If that were the case, Jesus never would have died between common criminals. Jesus was Emmanuel and he still is to this day. Why? Because God wants you to know you'll never be alone on this planet. You'll never be alone through anything you walk through. There'll never be a day, a time, a circumstance, or a season where I am not with you. Right now, the first thing we see when we ask the question, where is God? We get an immediate answer. He is with us. He is near. The second thing I think that we see when we ask this question in the context of day one, especially day two and day three, is that God is working. That's where God is right now. God is working right now. You're like, it doesn't look like God is working. I can't see that God is working. 
I, I haven't had one headline come across my television in the last few days that said, breaking news, God is working. Look at the Almighty at work. All we've seen are the headlines that say, the story is getting worse. The news is getting worse. The numbers are growing. The statistics are going off the chart. It doesn't seem like God is doing anything, but here's the thing. We've got day two. Day two, the Sabbath was a day of rest. It's that interesting and quirky concept that God put into the fabric of our lives. You know, when God created the world, on day six, he created man and woman, put them in the garden, gave them stewardship, responsibility, and a relationship with him. And then the next day came, the seventh day, and he said, today we're going to have a day of rest. They didn't need a day of rest. They just got there. They didn't need a day of rest. They weren't tired. They didn't need a day of rest. They were in paradise. You see, it wasn't rest because they were weary. It was rest to stop and to remember and to set apart this day as holy unto God. This is the day that we look up and we remember that God is the giver of all things, that God is the creator and sustainer of all things. That is Sabbath at its heart. And day two, when it seemed like nothing was working, guess what day it was? It was the Sabbath. It was the day we remember that God is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And it was the day that God was finishing the greatest work that has ever been done for you in your lifetime. Something that you could not do. Two other accounts in scripture sort of give us peaks, if you will, into what could have been happening between day one and day three. Ephesians 4 says that this Jesus has now ascended into the heavens. And it says the one who ascended, Ephesians 4, is the same one who descended into the lower parts of the earth. In this very text that we're looking at in 1 Peter chapter 3, the very next verse says that Jesus, in the power of that spirit, went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, there are many, many ways that theologians want to slice that particular verse and bring interpretation to it. But where the gospel writers don't say anything about day two, two other places hint at the fact that somehow, in some way, beyond our comprehension or full understanding, God Almighty was defeating death, defeating hell, defeating the power of the darkness, defeating the power of our sin, defeating the power of condemnation. He was ending the reign of guilt and shame, and he was conquering forever the grave. This is what God was doing when it looked like nothing was happening. God was accomplishing his greatest work. Now, if you say, well, technically, Louis, he couldn't have been doing that on day two because day two is the Sabbath, and on, on the Sabbath, we all cease from our labor. Well, I'll just remind us that from three o'clock until eight o'clock, there were five hours on Friday that God could do all that he needed to do because with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. 
I did the math. That means one hour in God's economy is 41.6 years. That means five hours before sundown on Friday, God had all the time in the world to do everything he needed to do. And whether Jesus somehow in his authority defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave, or by the declaration, proclamation of almighty God, or what it means in the text when it says he descended into the depths of the earth, I'll tell you what was happening. God was working. God was accomplishing. God was finishing fully the work of liberating us from the power of the darkness. Where is God right now? He's working right now. You say, well, I can't see it. Well, just wait till Sunday. Because I'm telling you, there is a Sunday coming. There is a day coming. There is a time coming when this too shall pass. And when that day comes, you and I are going to see and understand. We are going to have comprehension. Oh my word. God through it all, through the pain and the hardship and the darkness and the death of this broken planet. God was doing the miraculous. God was doing the unthinkable. God was doing the powerful work that only he can do. Just wait until day three and we are going to see the stone has been rolled away. But even until that day, we've got the confidence of the past to give us assurance that we can trust God for the future. Nearby where I'm speaking from right now, a few days ago, people went into a parking garage across from the Cartersville Medical Center. They tuned their car radios to uh, the radio station in town, and they began to sing an anthem from a chorus that a lot of us know called Waymaker. Somehow the staff at the hospital found out about it and workers came out onto the roof of the hospital looking over at the parking garage and joined them in this confession. And all of a sudden, this video now is going viral all around the world. Why? Because there is some great anchor to be sunk into the truth of what God did on day one and what we know happened for sure on day three. And that anchor is the anchor we need on day two. And the bridge of that song, we're going to sing it at the end of this gathering, says, even when I can't see it, you're working. And even when I don't feel it, you're working. If I can't see it and I can't feel it, that doesn't mean that God isn't here and it does not mean that he isn't working. How do I know that? Day two. God was doing something that none of us could do. The third thing when we answer this question, I believe, is this, and it's tied to that idea that we just talked about. Where is God? I'll tell you where God is. God is bringing about the greatest result possible right now, and that is the salvation of many people. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, we find one of the verses that always become a beacon of hope for us in moments like this. In the verse, Joseph is speaking. Joseph has been betrayed by his brothers. He's been sold into slavery. He's been uh, falsely accused, put in prison under the leaders of Egypt. He has been passed over multiple times, forgotten. The situation is so bleak. But at the end of it all, here's his perspective looking at his brothers, the same ones who put him into this position now that he's been raised up by God to be the second in command in the most powerful nation on planet earth at that time. He said, what you meant for evil, 
God intended for good. Now we know that phrase, and you'll hear that many times in these days, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. But a lot of us don't know the last part of that verse. It says what you meant for evil, God intended for good to bring about the saving of many people. God right now, where is God? He's doing the greatest thing. I do believe that God is helping and giving grace to everyone who needs it in this moment. You're like, Lou, we don't need prayers. We don't need platitudes. We don't need all the preachers telling us about all the God and is, is doing good with what, what was meant for evil. We need real-time help. We need respirators, and we need ventilators, and we need masks and face shields, and we need more hospital beds and more ICU units. This is what we need right now. We don't need all this spiritual mumbo-jumbo while the world is in a crisis. And I just want to remind us, I would say amen to that. I would agree fully to that. We don't need any spiritual mumbo jumbo at any point in our lives. And we do need every amount of our wisdom and our faculty and our ability to come to bear, to bring salvation to people, but to bring deliverance to people and healing to people in this situation. That's absolutely where we are today. But God is in all of that. You're like, I don't see God in any of that. I want to just remind you that Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, God causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, and he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. It rains on the unrighteous man's yard and the righteous man's yard. The sun comes up for the one who honors God, and the sun comes up for the one who curses God. Do you know what that's called? It's called the grace of God. And I believe everyone who is fighting this pandemic right now is experiencing help from heaven, whether they know it or not, because you can't get through times like this without help from Almighty God. But God's doing something more than just giving breath and mental capacity and computing ability and strength and resource to people. He's doing something more than that. And that is he's trying to leverage what is happening on earth to bring about the salvation of many people. I hope you hear my heart in saying this today as humbly as I can, but the greatest tragedy I can think of is someone who comes through medical care and survives a scare with COVID-19 and goes right back to a life that is without hope and without God and without purpose and without eternity, only to die in another season and another day without the Creator who made them for himself. God is working right now. And what is he doing? He's working to do the greatest thing he can do, which is not to see one person come to faith, but to see millions of people come to faith. Not to see a few people have a spiritual wake-up call, but to see millions of people have a spiritual wake-up call 
and come to life spiritually. Come to peace with Almighty God. Come to know forgiveness of their sins. Come to know what it means to have the burden of guilt and shame lifted off of their lives once and for all, to live with purpose and with meaning and with hope and with faith and with the power of God's Spirit in their life, with a view not just of this life, but the life to come in a relationship with Almighty God, now and forever. This is what God wants to do. There's a number that's going to come on the bottom of the screen right now. It's a number you can text in at any point, texting the word alive. And when you do that, you're saying, I'm putting my faith in Jesus. I'm acknowledging my need for a savior. I'm admitting that my life has fallen short of God's glory. And I'm asking Jesus to forgive me. I want to be born again. I want to come alive spiritually. I want a new relationship with God. I want to know that I have eternal life. And I'm just trusting that right now, while we're in the middle of this message, someone is saying, I want to get saved. I don't know if I I can wait to the end of the talk. I need to get saved right now. I want to put my faith in Jesus right now. I want to confess my sins right now. I want to ask for his forgiveness and believe him for salvation right now. I want day one and day three to become my day one and my day three. I'm texting in. I'm putting my faith in Jesus. I am becoming alive. I'm one of the many who are going to be saved because of this pandemic that is sweeping the world. But I think there's one last thing to ask the question, what is God doing in the middle of this pandemic and where is God in it all? And that is that God is extending mercy. That's where God is in the midst of this today. That's where we were last week, the 20 inches to mercy. But that's always at the heart of God, is to extend mercy to you. Judgment is coming. This passage that we read about Jesus dying once for all for the sins of the world to bring you to God, it says in the next few verses down a reference to the days of Noah. And the days of Noah, God's judgment came on planet Earth. Noah built an ark and invited everyone that he knew to come into the shelter of that ark. We don't know exactly how long it took him to build it and how many conversations he had with people along the way, but we do know from another place in scripture that Noah was called a righteous preacher. So what does that mean? It means that while he's building this ark, when no one's ever even seen a need for a boat, he's telling people, God's making a way. God is making a way. God is making a way. We know from the text that the world had fallen into wickedness in these days, that all manner of unrighteousness was sweeping planet Earth, that people had turned their hearts away from God and turned to their own ways, but God was providing a way. He had a man building a boat in the middle of nowhere who was saying to people, come to the ark, come to the ark, come to the ark, come to mercy. Do you know that right now in this moment, the USS Comfort and the USS Mercy are moving into port, one in Los Angeles, California, one in New York City. They are ships in a class called the Mercy class. And they are providing shelter 
for people to come and receive medical care in the midst of this crisis. Two mercy class ships are moving into port, one called comfort and one called mercy. It's just so clear that in moments like this, when we ask the question, where is God? God is pulling into port with an ark called comfort and mercy. God is pulling into your town, pulling into your driveway, pulling into your condo right now, pulling into your world, pulling in to our lives saying, I have a place that you can come and find mercy. And right now, more than ever, the world is hearing the story of day one and the story of day three, the finished work of God, who while he was resting on the Sabbath actually was finishing the earth's greatest work. But do you know in Noah's day, only eight people survived on the ark. Only eight people ran to mercy. We need a miracle. Medically, we need a miracle. But we need a miracle spiritually because God is near and God is working. God, in fact, is doing the greatest work right now. And God is extending mercy to you and to me. So what does Sabbath mean to you? You're like, Louis, I'm not Jewish. I don't observe the Sabbath. And there's always a push and a pull. Is it Saturday or Sunday that we should gather to worship? Listen, all of us are created by God and all of us are called into Exodus 20. All of us are called into the longest of the Ten Commandments, the most uh, words of all the Ten Commandments. And it is the one about remembering the Sabbath to keep it holy. You don't work. Don't let your maidservant work. Don't do any work on this day, but set apart this day. The word says, sanctify the day. Keep the day holy. What does that mean? Keep the day about God. Keep the day about the creator. Why? Because God knew that we needed Sabbath because of our fallen, sinful patterns and ways. Sabbath is God's gift to mankind so that we would never miss the magnitude of the absolute and uncontested sufficiency of God to both create all things and fully rescue all those he has made. What does that mean to you? It means that we're not owners, we're stewards. That's what happened on the seventh day of creation. I made all this. 
I'm just asking you to be in charge of it. I did all of this by myself. You didn't make any of it, including you. I created everything, and now I'm just asking you to be a steward of what I am putting in your hands. Do you know what Sabbath means? It means that we are guests in God's creation. We were put here for entrepreneurship, but mostly we were placed here for relationship with him. You know what Sabbath means? It means that we are not the maker. We are the made. You know what Sabbath means to you and me? It means that our lives are about his glory. His life and existence isn't about our glory. Sabbath means all the praise goes to God and none of the praise and worship goes to me. Sabbath means I am here to acknowledge and amplify the greatness of God and to spend my days telling him how great he is. Do you know what Sabbath means? It means that we are dependent and not independent. Do you know what Sabbath means? It means that we are not in control. God is in control. Do you understand today? You've never been in control. I've never been in control. COVID-19 is no respecter of persons. It's an invisible enemy, and it doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care if you are rich or if you are poor. It is no respecter of any person. And no matter what you do, where you go, you cannot fully, totally be in control. Heart disease, it doesn't care who you are either. Accidents, crashes, they don't care who you are. Cancer doesn't care who you are. The grave doesn't care who you are. We've never been in control. We've only fooled ourselves to think that we're in control. But Sabbath, day two, it brings us back and tells us all over again, we are not in control. But there is some good news. Our God, he is in control. He's in control of this world. He's got a storyboard that is unfolding. He is still a sovereign God. And he's in control of you and in control of my life. If you're saying, but Louie, uh, we built a safe house. <laughs> the only safe house is the ark called comfort and mercy. For this is the end of Psalm 23. For your goodness and love, we said growing up, some translations, for your goodness and your mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The scripture says the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it, and they are saved. The only safe house is the ark of the comfort and the ark of the mercy that is called Jesus who on day two showed us that what God had finished was only to be seen in full. God, who seemed to be resting, was fully in control and doing the one thing that only he could do, saving our lives, saving this world, forgiving our sin, raising us up out of the grave and reconnecting us in a relationship with God that cannot be assailed. The comfort and mercy in New York and L.A., they have no offensive weapons on board. 
They're not coming into port to declare war. They're coming to extend mercy. But they do have defensive weapons on board. And if you attack them, you're going to get a rebuttal. And in the ark of God's comfort, in the ark of God's mercy today, in the person of Jesus who's reaching out for you today, you can come and find the shelter in this storm. And when anyone tries to assail you, there are enough defensive weapons on board to protect you until the moment in time that Jesus fully perfects his plan for you and brings you home. Where is God? He's here. Right here. Right now. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thank you for listening to the Passion City Church podcast.